0: This is the English Heritage Podcast.
1: Hello, and welcome back to your weekly podcast, Into England's Past. I'm Charles Rowe. Coming up, we discover the story behind the new footbridge at Tintagel Castle.
0: I think it's going to revolutionise visitors' experience of the site and it's going to give them a real thrilling way to connect one half of the site with the other. uh, But I think there's also a real visceral thrill of stepping out into the air across that chasm.
2: We find out about its construction. It's very, very slender. It's a see-through structure, really. You you can look through it and, and though it shows it's working, it does it in a really, really elegant way. I can't imagine any other bridge in that location i think it's uh, i think it's a wonderful addition to the site
1: and we'll hear how its design connects past and present more from our english heritage special guests nicola tasker jeremy ashby and reuben briggs in just a few moments but first here's a look ahead to what we're covering soon on the english
2: heritage podcast there's an element of truth in it But there's an element of extremism in it and of course the term Bloody Mary, it taints the whole of her reign whereas actually it is just one part of Mary's reign.
0: I think when Wellington bought the house, there was a great euphoria after Waterloo and everybody was naming things Wellington this, Wellington that, and it probably would have been just a little bit common for him to name his own house, Wellington House.
1: And it puts the Iron Bridge in a category of some pretty esteemed monuments such as you know, Hadrian's Wall, Stonehenge, but also further afield, it really puts it right up there with the best of the best. Make sure you join us every Thursday for fresh episodes. And don't forget to review and subscribe. Now, this week, we unveil a new chapter in the story of Tintagel Castle in Cornwall. Hundreds of years after King Arthur was supposedly born here, a 21st century bridge is now being added to the site. It's important because in this dramatic setting, visitors now have a more direct way of reaching the island that was effectively cut off by coastal erosion around 500 years ago. It also saves them a long and winding journey of 148 steps. Joining me to talk more about the project, we have three special guests. And if I could get you all to introduce yourselves, starting with Jeremy
2: first. I'm Jeremy Ashby. I'm the Head Properties Curator at English Heritage.
0: I'm Nicola Tosca. I'm Head of National Projects for English Heritage.
3: I'm Ruben Briggs. I'm the Senior National Project Manager. Thanks
1: for joining us on the English Heritage Podcast. So first, Jeremy, if I could start with you, where is Tintagel Castle? And how would you describe
2: the geography there? Okay. Tintagel is on the north coast of Cornwall. Uh, As you know, Cornwall is the bottom left-hand corner of the island of Great Britain. And it's a rocky landscape of cliffs and deep, narrow inlets. And We often talk about an island, and it actually isn't an island, but it's part of a very rugged, rocky headland that's projecting northwards into the sea, out into the area of the Bristol Channel and the Irish Sea. And I understand that area was joined up differently in the
1: past, and there was some coastal erosion. Now that island is almost like an island,
2: but but not quite. There's still a little bit of land on that beach. Yeah, geologists get really, really excited about it, and so do cultural historians a bit like me. But it's a place where you can actually see the processes of the creation of Earth still happening. And one of the wonderful things about when you stand at Tintagel, as you look to left and to right, you can see other formations that, with a bit of imagination, actually could look a bit like Tintagel. Either Tintagel is a bit further on in the process than they were, or they've gone further. That process being the area in which basically a sort of rectangular, rough rectangular projection increasingly the connection between that and the mainland gets narrower and narrower and lower and lower as more and more of the rock falls away until eventually it becomes completely separate and becomes an island and tintagel isn't there yet the island or headland of tintagel is still connected to the mainland but there's a very deep dip from the top of the cliffs on the mainland side and on the island side you actually have to go down quite a long way and then across a very narrow saddle and then back up the other side and since visitors have been coming to Tintagel in any numbers since the 19th century, people have been grappling with the question about how to get them most safely and most easily from one part of the site to another.
1: And originally it was 148 steps,
2: wasn't it, Nicola? And I
1: guess that's why we've come up with this idea to build the bridge.
0: Yeah, that was a very large factor in why we decided to build the bridge, but it was also a question of understanding of the site. Because the castle used to have a very narrow connection between the outer part of the castle, which is now on what we call the mainland, and the inner part on the island, people haven't been able to access the castle in the traditional way for many hundreds of years. And so putting the bridge in to replace the old land bridge will enable them to go through the castle and and understand its history a bit more from that point of view.
1: So you were involved in the idea to bring about this bridge to replace the land bridge that previously existed. What was your job exactly?
0: I was involved at the beginning. Once we had decided that a bridge was going to be a good thing, I was involved in arranging an architectural competition which we ran internationally for architects and engineering designers to bring their skills and volunteer to get involved in the project. And we had, I think, 137 applications from different designers wow. to be involved from all over the world. And we had to whittle that down to six who we then took forward and they they worked up a, a more detailed design for us. And then we had a jewellery panel who helped us decide which would be the best design of the bridge.
1: And this is where you start to rope in Ruben, I guess, at, at some point and go, right, We've got six designs and uh, were you going through loads of paperwork and looking at lots of designs and how did it work?
0: We did. We, um, we looked at all of the 130 odd first of all uh, and then whittled it down to six. And then we had presentations where the architects kind of came up and told us their ideas and lots of them had built models and they'd done lots of CGI drawings of what the bridge would look like in situ. And we had a jewellery panel of great and the good designers, engineers, architects, archaeologists, historians who brought in to help us decide. And so within a day of assessing all those schemes and presentations, we then had to make a decision.
1: And you were in on those meetings, I presume, Ruben?
3: Um, no, I actually came in after that decision had been made. So okay. once we had decided on the on the winning bridge... Uh, and the designers were appointed, we then began the feasibility work to see if it actually worked and we could build the bridge on site.
1: Okay, so what was the next step then? What what did you have to do in terms of, did you have to do surveys of the geography? and? Yes,
3: so you, you almost have to start again from the beginning. So we had the picture of what it should look like and some outline designs, and we had to test whether or not it was buildable at Tintagel, which is obviously a very isolated area of coast with uh, minimal access to it, no electricity, no services. So we had to take the design, see first of all, whether or not we could build it on site. So that would involve a lot of geotechnical studies, drilling down into the kind of core of Tintagel, extracting stone, testing it to see if it'd be strong enough to hold the foundations. And then also working on the design, starting to test whether it works structurally. So doing a lot of structural calculations, modeling to see whether or not the two cantilevers would be able to stand up uh, in that location.
1: And you mentioned cantilever there, which is the winning design. Can you describe what a cantilever
3: bridge looks like? Well, if you imagine two arches, if you like, reaching out and not quite touching, the reason for a cantilever design was really is a very simple structure. If you imagine it's slightly like a, a shelf bracket, and because it only has two fixed points one at the top of the bridge and one lower down on the lower part of the arch it means there's minimal intervention so the foundations are quite small and you haven't got wires overhead like with a suspension bridge or underslung suspension either so it means the visual impact and the physical impact on the ground is is minimal so that's why it was such a great design in my view it's the uh, the best one of the competition also and practically it worked you know it could be built it didn't require scaffolding to build it so again the impacts were very very low in terms of what we had to do to achieve construction
1: i understand there's a small gap between two areas because obviously they're meeting in the middle yes how, how big is that gap the gap should only
3: be about 40 mil on average all right um, so it's fairly small i'm sure people would like to to stop and have a look at it but it, it shouldn't cause a problem the other thing to mention is that the the bridge is actually held level by two pins so that it can't move out of alignment so you never get a step or anything like that it should just be a, a small gap in the center which separates the two
1: And it's completely solid? You don't get any sort of rocking or anything like that? Because I know when they first opened one of the bridges in London years ago, uh, everyone was getting a bit seasick just walking across
3: it. Presume we don't have that problem with this one. No, I mean, the crucial thing with that is to work out whether or not you might have a problem at Mm. the beginning. And at the beginning of the project, they did some initial calculations and it showed that we could be susceptible to some kind of human-induced vibration, it's called, which meant we could build in appropriate dampers into the structure which kind of eradicate any of that problem.
2: Mm. One of the more surreal moments in the process of planning it was when a number of us went to a university in Belgium and they gave us a demonstration about how bridges vibrate when humans walk over them. And it did have a moment of high ridiculousness where a whole number of us stood on a footbridge and were told to bounce up and down on it. And then at a certain moment they'd go, okay, now how do you feel? And we would assess at that moment that the vibration had reached you know level four and that felt okay a bit comfortable but level five or level six would feel really uncomfortable and they said okay well now we know what you know people can tolerate imagine that at Tintagel were there
1: any particular challenges in in building this bridge then for both of you Nicola and Ruben obviously you had your engineers doing their homework and their research and sending you their ideas and designs but when it came to actually getting on site and um doing all the surveys and that kind of thing were there any particular challenges with the rockiness and uh, the land formation. Um,
0: yeah, absolutely. I'll let Ruben talk about the um, the technical side. There, there were particular challenges before we got on site about getting all the right permissions for the bridge, because obviously it's in an extremely sensitive area, not just from a historic and a heritage perspective, but it's also uh, what they call a SI, a site of special scientific interest. So from an ecological perspective, we had to be sure that the designs wouldn't impact on the special ecology of the site. And so, so the wildlife and... That's right, yeah. yeah. So um, there was quite a long process of getting permissions and we're really pleased that we managed to work with lots of stakeholders to to get a successful outcome. But when we started on site, there, there were other technical problems, weren't there?
3: Yeah, uh, lots of challenges getting it built. On site, you know, I touched on before the fact that you can't, Get any vehicles up to where the bridge landing points are. So, we first of all had to build this cable crane, which is like a long cable car that stretches across the valley and has a, a hook on it which can come down and pick things up. So, just getting that installed took several couple of months, probably. And then the first job really is to excavate down and start work on the foundations. And of course, you never really know what you're going to find until you start digging. And we had difficulties there, you know, had to make some adaptions to make sure everything worked Mm, because you want to make sure it's solid well yes yeah (laughs) (laughs) the bridge is going to fall down um so yeah you know you've got to are you going to find solid ground at the depth you're expecting to find it are the anchors going to go in as 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 easily as you think they are um on each side we had about six anchors to install and they're about 15 meters deep and you have to get them you know to the millimeter in position so it's a very challenging environment to work in as well that's really deep
1: isn't it 15 meters
3: yeah that's that's pretty deep So, yeah, you can see the challenges involved in that, especially when you're working on a a cliff face with a a 70 metre drop beneath you. Kind of getting the drilling rig in place to drill those holes is quite difficult. What's it actually made out of, this bridge? Two types of steel. So you've got carbon steel, which forms the main structural arches, if you like, and that's painted.
1: I've never heard of carbon steel before. Um, Is that a new thing?
3: no it's a fairly uh, standard type of steel oh, that right. you you okay. find on most structures but then we've also got the kind of deck bracing and the balustrade and all the connection joints are made out of duplex stainless steel which is a very specialist type of stainless steel which has a very high resistance to corrosion mm. so all the kind of main connection joints and structural elements are, are made out of that so that they have a, a long-term resistance to um corrosion
1: so it looks fairly metallic and does it have wooden slats for walking across?
3: or no, no, the the deck is made of slate, Cornish slate, I should add, from Delebol Quarry, which is just up the road from the site. So they hand cut around 40,000, 50,000 slates and they're all laid on edge right across the deck. So it actually makes quite a unique feature. A nice local touch. Ditch. Yes. Yeah.
0: I think it was important that we did it that way as well because... The exposure of the site, not only is it important that we have these kind of anti-corrosion measures that um, Ruben's talked about because of the marine environment and how exposed it is, but also potential slip. So if you lay the slates on edge, it means it's got a bit of resistance, people are less likely to slip on the bridge.
1: Oh, that's a good point. And Jeremy, do do you like the look of the bridge? Have you visited it and... And had a, taken a few selfies.
2: I absolutely love it, and I think—I mean, Nicola was talking about the process of the competition, but I think this bridge really stood out. It's very, very slender. It's—it's it's a see-through structure, really. You—you you can look through it, and—and and though it shows it's working, it does it in a really, really elegant way. And I can't imagine any other bridge in that location. I think it's—I uh, it, it, think it's a wonderful addition to the site.
3: It's worth saying that the, one of the things the designers are most pleased with is that the initial images that were produced four years ago now are almost you know entirely accurate to what's on site so the bridge has hardly changed at all from the initial concept to delivery. And that's quite rare of the structure that it actually, you know, you can deliver what you first thought you could. So that's been quite an achievement. We've talked obviously about
1: the bridge and the aesthetic and what it's made out of, etc, etc. But you've obviously got two parts that you're linking with this bridge. So can you describe have there been any uh, adjustments or amendments or new additions to what we call the island and the land where you approach from?
0: There's been um, another part of the project which has been to look at the landscape of both sides of the castle and to improve. So we didn't only want to improve access by, you know, avoiding all the steps down that Jeremy was mentioning earlier, but also to improve the quality of the pathways. And it was important to improve the pathways because what we found was there was a lot of erosion of the archaeology on the site by people perhaps unawares stepping on foundations of some 5th and 6th century structures which are really very special so by putting in more clear pathways but still very low-key and um, suitable to the kind of rural coastal setting we're able to guide people in their choices they can still choose to walk around the island freely but we're sort of guiding them around with this new landscape work
1: and is there new boards as well to tell people what's what you can see and what, what you're looking at
0: Yes, absolutely. So we have installed a new interpretation. There was a scheme to renew the interpretation at Tintagel a couple of years ago, so we were already on that journey, but there is new information as well, which is around the site. We hope it all enhances what the visitors experience when they're there.
2: So I guess everything on
1: the to-do list... Tintagel is now
2: done in a way. Oh, I'd never say that. We can always think of other things to do. And it's it's actually a site that still retains quite a lot of mystery about it, mm. though the story that we have to tell is a really exciting and and, and and thrilling one. Actually, every time we break new ground or sometimes things turn up even without us looking for them, you know, they erode out of the sides of paths that people find, you know, bits of fifth and sixth century pottery and other things of that kind. So we think that Tintagel still has a few stories to tell that we haven't had the chance to do, and we're always looking to do that because we think that this is a site that's important nationally, but also internationally for what it tells us.
1: Obviously, we've got the Arthur,
2: King Arthur link.
1: What are the things that people should know about when they hear the name Tintagel Castle and they look up information about
2: this new bridge? Uh, It's hard to know how to say that one briefly. (laughs) Yeah, the Arthur thing is, is important, and actually, I mean, we... We embrace that. I think that once upon a time, our predecessors probably would have been a little bit more cagey about it because, you know, King Arthur is legend and organisations like English Heritage, we should be dealing with real history and real archaeology, shouldn't we? Well, the answer is you actually, at Tintagel, you have to do both because we believe that many of the people who lived at Tintagel in previous times and indeed built a medieval castle there did so because they were interested in stories like King Arthur and actually that's the most credible reason why they did it actually as a castle it doesn't really make sense for the normal thing about occupying a territory and holding it under your control it makes much much more sense for saying well actually while I'm living here I can imagine that I'm walking in the footsteps of great heroes of mythology and antiquity and oh aren't I big and brave you know in that kind of way so actually people do need to understand about that story and it's a still a big thing at Tintagel that you know when you go to the village you know you will probably park in a car park called the sword in the stone you will walk past a pub called the king arthur's arms you will go past guinevere's dry cleaning shop and so on and so forth and you know in some ways that's a bit of fun but in other ways actually it's good to to engage with it properly because it actually opens up all sorts of interesting insights into the way that people thought and behaved in the past as well as in the present.
1: So I suppose in some respects this bridge is helping to tell that story again really or to to refresh the story for new visitors Um, because every step that they take on that new bridge they're learning something new and they're also learning about the bridge potentially. I suppose you've got, have you got a display that tells people about this new bridge as well?
0: Yeah, we've got information there about how the bridge is being built at the moment but I think you're exactly right. The land link that the bridge sort of mimics and re-evokes is part of that 12th century castle, which Jeremy was saying was built to honour or to reflect the mythology around King Arthur. So the fact that they'll be able to enter in the same way as as the people of those times and experience the castle. And it's a very, you know, even in, in my most sensible ways, it's a very kind of... Um, Magical and evocative and atmospheric site. You can certainly kind of stand on the headland and the mist starts coming in, and, and you can see why there is a bin of mythology built up around there.
1: Yeah, because you're still you're with the new bridge, you're standing on the actual old land bridge that previously existed before it fell away into the Absolutely, sea. Absolutely,
0: which is an opportunity that nobody's had for hundreds of years.
1: Yeah, so that's um, quite exciting, I expect. So from concept to completion, what sort of time frame have we been looking at for for this whole project?
0: I think from the point at which we decided as an organisation we were going to go ahead, it is probably about five years. Yeah, I think it's um, 2014, I would say. Before would say like that, that, there were already from people who work in the area, you know, a desire of oh, one day if we ever had the possibility, what we'd like to do is put a bridge here. So I think that has been knocking around amongst staff who work for us in the West. Yeah, well,
2: one of the really time. funny things is that no one can say it was my idea. Actually, whose idea it was, I think in our own private mythology, each of us thinks that it was them that, that thought of it. <laughs> Sounds very awkward. Because it's, <laughs> it's such a good idea. But uh, yeah. no, it, it was just one of those things that, that, that popped out you know, of the ether. And it's a very big and ambitious thing to do. And um, you know, as organisations go, we hadn't built a bridge for a very, very long time. Certainly not anything on this kind of scale in a site so challenging. So we've had to get up to speed about how you build bridges really, really quickly. And that's been a fascinating experience, I think, for everyone who's been involved.
1: What are the benefits to the site and to visitors in general now that this bridge is gradually nearing completion and nearing opening time?
0: I think it's going to revolutionise visitors' experience of the site, and it's going to give them a real thrilling way to connect one half of the site with the other, and so it will increase their understanding of the historic nature of the site. But I think there's also a real visceral thrill of stepping out into the air across that chasm. I mean, we hope in a practical way that it does a great deal for the business in the village, and that um, there are a lot of spin-off benefits, because we're sure that it's going to be very popular and um, You know, we're introducing measures to make sure that people's experience of the site is is still going to be very good quality, in spite of the fact we do think it's going to be a good attraction.
3: Yeah, I agree with all of that. I think, you know, the chance to walk across into the castle along the original route of the inhabitants is a kind of uh, something the visitors will really find exciting. And just, you know, on a practical level as well, just access wise, there'll be people who weren't able to visit the castle before and now they can. You know, we've created a whole step-free route to take them right onto the site. And that's something we've seen before, something like 15% of visitors buy a ticket and then can't actually make it up the steps. So it will make a real difference for people. Now that the bridge is going to be opened at some point in the future soon, can you still use
1: the steps if you want to, if you're feeling fit?
0: Yes, absolutely. And we've think that people will use the step route back from the island so we imagine that they will probably go across the bridge at the high level and then come back via the step route but it gives you a different experience and it's easier down than up i can tell you
1: <laughs> oh, yeah, that's a good point and have you got any other projects that you're working on at the moment um you, you talked um before you came on air as it were about building this bridge and how this was quite a big thing for english heritage have you got any other sort of projects that you, uh, are coming um, up soon? We've
0: got a great number of projects. We, we were very fortunate that when we were set up as a charity four years ago, we were giving a lump sum of money by the government to enable us to invest in our sites. And, and, and we're still doing that going forward. We're also working at a beautiful house that we have called Boskbell, Bell. And that will be finished sometime in 2020. We are looking at telling the stories of Bosk Bell in a more creative and imaginative way, particularly the story of Charles II, who um, was known to have hidden within the core of an oak tree within the landscape at Boscobel when he was on the run at some point. Oh, yes, and I've heard um, that. Yeah. we're kind of celebrating that story and helping people to understand that a bit better.
1: Jeremy, you had a point about the bridge, didn't you? You're, you're quite excited about these new projects that join past and present.
2: Yeah, I am. And I think it's uh, there's a number of us at English Heritage that, that are very excited about you know, harnessing the best of new design and new technology, rather than just make it look like it's part of the historic site, that would be so inappropriate at at a place like Tintagel, that actually, you know, a, a response to what was needed needed to be a contemporary response. And as Nicola was saying, it's a site that's so sensitive in so many ways, it's part of an area of outstanding natural beauty. So it needed to be an outstanding design and you know i think when we saw this one and some of the others we knew we were you know on, on, on the right track I, th- I think it's wonderful and i think it's potentially the kind of thing that those that are lucky enough to have the resources to do it will look at heritage sites now in a different way and think well they did it at Tentagel; we should think about that too
1: You've been listening to the English Heritage Podcast. For more information about the new bridge at Tintagel, just visit the Tintagel Castle page on the English Heritage website, where you can also book a visit and see a video about the project. We're back again next week. Until then, don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review. Thanks for listening. See you next time.